This podcast is 100% a work of fiction, and while Tim Notary is a real person, everything else is made up on the spot, and anything resembling reality is just your imaginations. This show contains languages and situations which may be considered to be adults, so please consider yourselves to be warned. gonna try doing this we're this is marathon uh this is the always crashing this is let's try that again from the top welcome to always crashing a drive time talk show for the on-demand internet age i am your host tim notary listeners uh, of the marathon of the show who have been sticking with us uh today we have something special for you um no 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 missives from Dan Ratherman to work in just yet. No um how do you say pontifications by um Terry uh, for this episode? No. What we have for you today is another podcast. Not made by me. Not made by anyone affiliated with a crashpod.com. But um, you know, in in doing this marathon, sometimes you gotta bunt um <laughs> to get to get that uh th- you know, you get a thing out. Um, especially as just a, you know, a alone one person doing everything. Um trying to you know in in this marathon i am both sisyphus and the boulder (laughs) um so as as i tumble back down the hill where i am will be waiting to push myself back up the cliff side again uh i thought i found this um podcast by open source media the uh, podcast is open source um by christopher leiden leiden christopher leiden he'll introduce himself in the show this this comes from a couple years ago 2014 and it is uh the title of the podcast this episode is self-surveillance uh and it you know (laughs) dovetails quite nicely to what i'm interested in uh and at least what thematically season two has been so far so uh you know having some nice background information is is good some shared uh pool of wisdom uh as a listener and a creator so you know i thought i would i would share it with you also i you know i was looking for stuff (laughs) uh to cut up and edit into the show and this um is podcast is no derivative works the one that i'm sharing right now and it's full length 50 and so i'm respecting that uh as a booster supporter 
town crier for Creative Commons uh, and the Internet Archive. Stuff that's, you know, free to use and find the library of the Internet, as I like to think them, you know, uh, you know, Creative Commons. Um, and the Internet Archive. Uh, I have access. I'll put all that up in the notes. But without further ado, here's episode 22 of Always Crashing the Podcast, which is just, uh, you know, an old episode of another podcast that somebody else made. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I'll come back and check check in on the end. So you'll hear from me again, but uh, let's uh, fade out right now. I'm Christopher Leiden, and this is Open Source, catching up with what the government knows about us, and more particularly with what Google, Facebook, and our phone companies know about us, why they care, and what they do with the oceans of very particular factoids, our comings and goings, our intimate clusters of family and friendship and email correspondence, our minutest preferences in music and fashion, in people and books, sports and movies. So we're asking back, what is this mushrooming mass of accessible personal data, what we used to call private information, what is it doing to our sense of self? to our inner and invisible, used to be secret souls, to our ideal of freestanding individuals in an open but non-intrusive society. We begin with Ashkan Soltani, a relentless and thoughtful frontiersman, to locate us in the brave new world, and then we're going to bring art and imagination into this murky scene with the radio storyteller Benjamin Walker, the Harvard media theorist Judith Donath and the photographer Trevor Paglin, who is finding fresh ways to see secrecy. And then we'll have a word with Germany and a man who covered the surveillance state and the Stasi police who enforced it in communist East Germany post-war. For context, in our time and our town, we asked people on Charles Street in Boston this week if they thought they were being watched. I'm sure I must be. I mean, on the internet, you know. It's a choice one makes. I don't like what the government's doing. I think it's inefficient, apart from everything else. I don't think that they can possibly sift through all that material to any good purpose. I think they're misusing their resources. I, I, honestly, I don't really think about it. I just kind of live in my own little bubble. I was just talking to my, my cousin. I was telling him this can become a communist country. They don't trust nobody. They, they put so much pressure on people. Nobody trusts nobody no more. I don't get online. Why not? They already can listen and see what I'm doing. I don't need to volunteer more information. Some surveillance is probably good and safer, and some is just an invasion of privacy. You know, I don't worry about it too much. Nothing bad's happened so far. They have no business messing with people who have not done anything wrong. I mean, they need to leave us alone, stay out of our lives, mind their own business. What you, Mark? I agree. I see no reason for the national security agency to record all the information and keep files on normal people. There's no reason for it. And they can't explain the reason either other than they think they need it. I think it's a government overreach. And I think it's all about control. Ashkan Sultani, you have been in on a succession of newspaper scoops about the NSA for years now. What is 
What is your new lead on the story, and where do you think it's going? Uh, hi there. So, Welcome. Um, our, th thanks for having me. So our, our latest story was kind of uh, a, a look into the actual raw data that the government collects on um, on targets, uh, targets of surveillance. And we kind of sifted through something like 22,000 intercepts or reports um, uh, on, on surveillance targets. And in that pile, we've, we identified something like 160,000 actual kind of messages or emails or instant message communications um, of uh, a number of people that were not actual targets, right? So what we went through is kind of try to compare the targeted individuals, the people that the government is interested in monitoring, and weed out how many incidental or kind of uh, standbyers were affected. And we found something like um, 11,000 accounts uh, of, of folks that were not actually targeted whose information was still collected or whose, whose participation was recorded. So why are they doing it? I should say we means you and Bart Gelman of the Washington Post. And Julie Tate and, uh, and a few others, yes. The distinguished uh, team, okay. Um, and, uh, and, and to the question of why keep it, I, I think, so, so first off, um, the nature of communication is there's multiple parties involved. Um, and, you know, this wasn't simply just emails or instant messages. Sometimes it was things like chat forums or, you know, um, kind of uh, kind of uh, IRC chats where you where multiple people will be participating in the chat similar to if I walked up to a crowd of people on the street and they're recording me the people that are kind of standing by me listening might also be recorded or at least observed um, and then to the point of why keep it I, I think the government has this belief that this information could become useful at some later point in time um, and you know we're, we're in an age where information's very cheap to, to store and retain. And if there's a potential, even small um, uh, potential for it to be valuable later, I think the government feels that, well, maybe it should keep it um, in, in that in the event it is useful. You know, part of the, the, the big news in that story for me, Ashkan, was, was exploding the myth of so-called metadata. And I have to say, President Obama has has been encouraging this notion that it's just numbers, just broad statistics or some vast overview without personal content. It's incredibly personal. It's baby pictures, it's diaries, it's, it's family connections. Expand on that, that it's not, when, when they tell you, when they determine who you're talking to and the, the pattern of your email uh, traffic, this is not metadata. This is this is everything about you or about me. Right. And so there's a there's an interesting play on words. So metadata is essentially data about data, right? And um, it's been used in the phone call records program whereby the government gets call detail records, you know, numbers of who you've been calling um, and for how long, et cetera. And to your point, yes, absolutely. That information doesn't reveal just who I'm ca calling, but it reveals the types of places, whether I'm calling, you know, a drug clinic or whether I'm calling a potential employer or, you know, uh, where I'm seeking information, right? Uh, so, so metadata in itself is highly sensitive. Um, the, the most recent story we wrote about also talked about the content of communications of things like emails and photos and attachments. You know, maybe um, we, we found a number of, say, uh, you know, 
academic transcripts, other types of data that you receive in your email, right? We as we move all of our communications to kind of the internet and to uh, you know email and webmail, you know not just the conversation about what you and I are going to have for dinner, but also, you know, my uh, potential information from my health insurance company or from my employer or, you know, uh, travel arrangements, all of that stuff exists in my email. And that's the stuff that the government is collecting. Part of the story for me this week, Ashkan, was, was a, came out of a MIT scientist who uh, has a website. I dialed right in. We all did. Uh, that will show you the pattern, what Google sees in your in the map of my email. 150,000 emails over a period of seven years, and it it automatically clusters them: family, professional, you know, political or or, or personal or musical interests, different kinds of groups that I'm I'm associated with. It's a it's a complete profile of who who I am. They don't need to know anything more. They, I mean, they know sort of what orbit I work in, what general subjects I'm interested in, and it applies to all of us. I, I, I frankly was stunned. Right, and so you know, your your the digital trail that you leave um, is essentially your shadow as you move through the the world. Right, you leave traces of communications, you leave traces of purchases, you leave traces yep. of um, you know your location. One of the stories we did described how the government was collecting uh, kind of on the order of 5 billion location records worldwide per day, right, Uh, in order to identify who is traveling with whom, right? So, for example, if I'm a person of interest and you and I meet for lunch and then later you and I, you know, uh, meet later for drinks or go to an office building together, even if we never call each other, our, our movements will be mapped together. And by collecting uh, and monitoring the world's movements, you know, five billion <laughs> records, uh, the government's able to identify those connections, right, those connections between us. The other big point that's dawning slowly on me is that there's a merger here. I mean, they're not tracking me for as a spy or as a terrorist or as a suspect of anything. They're tracking my buying preferences. What There's a, there's a melding in this world here of sort of social control or security or whatever you want to call that government interest and then targeted marketing Consu- right. consumerism right so the the government was always able to track individuals right but that that tracking was typically limited to the resources of the government right so if i wanted to for example follow you around on the street i would have to assign i as the government would have to assign agents to follow you around and um track your 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 uh, movements, right? But right. now, because you use commercial services like co- uh, commercial f- cell phone services, or you use um, you know applications, mobile applications that would, for example, uh, monitor the st- your your movements for traffic patterns and tell you which way to go, the government's able to piggyback on those uh, on those uh, on that data. And rather than assign individuals and take precious resources uh, themselves, they're able to utilize commercial tracking and commercial movements to do it for them, thereby dropping the cost for them and potentially the the barrier to get that information. Can I ask you a question about your source, which you're not supposed to do, but Edward Snowden is in the background of so much of this news, and he seems to still have a key to what the NSA is doing. What's what's he leading us to? What's he He's trying to redeem us or, or, or save us from something, but what's what's the larger Snowden plot here. 
I mean, I can't really um, guess as to what the motives are and, and really comment on on his intent. I think um, my understanding is that that from the very beginning he identified some of these trends and um, kind of broad surveillance and this uh, this kind of the scale of collection and that was his motive or part of his motive for making these files available publicly right I think the the idea is there's you know technology has radically changed the way we all interact and that trend has benefited us greatly I can now talk to you from my you know from my house or send you you know movies of my activities but I, but that trend has also benefited the government and the scale at which they can um, track and follow individuals and I think that's what uh, these revelations have really helped us see we're tracking the news we're also trying to estimate the effects on our humanity of this kind of observation Ashkan Sultani is is walking us through the surveillance state. The independent radio artist Ben Walker is going to trace the story to 1984, by which he means not the classic dystopian novel by George Orwell, but 1984, the year in our history, 30 years ago in America. I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. Our colleague in radio from way back, Ben Walker, of the one-of-a-kind podcast called TOE for Theory of Everything, he says... The when question is easy. The answer is 1984. On January 24th, Apple Computer will introduce Macintosh. And you'll see why 1984 won't be like 1984. We're awfully glad that you're watching 2020 tonight, and we count on the loyalty of you, our viewers. But okay, we understand you might have to miss the program now and then. So what do you do? John Stossel, what do you do? You tape it, Barbara. If you're like millions of Americans, you have a machine like this one, a VCR or video cassette recorder. Take a cassette, slip it in the machine, and you can record whatever program you want to watch and watch it at your convenience, not the TV station's convenience. It's called freedom. True. We're doing a story about a federal government agency known as NSA. Do you know what it is and what it does? No, I don't. NSA? I know an insurance company. No, I don't. NSA? Nah. NSA? No, I never heard of it. The NSA. <laughs> it's morning again in America. And under the leadership of President Reagan, our country is prouder and stronger and better. Why would we ever want to return to where we were less than four short years ago? That's just a taste of Ben Walker's theory of everything. You'll find a link to it on our website, radioopensource.org. Ben Walker, so great to be on the radio with you yeah, again. Yeah, it's, it's uh, really good to be here with you, Chris. <laughs> you say it was the year, not the book, that counts about 1984. But you experienced them both, in a sense, together. Yeah. Put them together, take them apart. So in 1984, I was 12 years old, and I was a nerdy uh, sixth grader you. going into middle school, and I was obsessed with... George Orwell's novel. So I decided that I would keep a diary like the main character Winston Smith does uh, for the whole year and sort of map out because I had this belief that uh, the world was more Orwellian than the people I would see on the news, 
on television mm. telling me. So over the course of the year, you know, it was kind of a lot of fun. It was like a puzzle. You know, some things were obvious, like Ronald Reagan was just as fake or real as Big Brother was in the book. Some were a little more ominous. Um, you know, Room 101 was where I had to have detention in middle school. But it was also, <laughs> you know, like the homeless was, were clearly the unpersons of 1984. Some were, were kind of fun, like Clara Peller became my own Emmanuel Goldstein, where Where's the Beef was sort of this thought crime that was manufactured for, for mass consumption. And then some kind of became kind of spooky, like the formula 2 plus 2 equals 5 that O'Brien sort of tortures Winston to believe. That, I just, there's no better... Uh, definition of Reaganomics than <laughs> two plus two equals five. So over the course of the year, it became less fun and it started to get really more ominous and scary. And I started to feel that I could see and experience this totalitarianism that just no one else seemed to understand or relate to. And by the end of the year, I was a very, very confused young man. I put it away. 30 years later, we have people on the news saying that, oh, we're living in 1984. It's this drumbeat, especially around Snowden. It's, we're living in 1984. Things are worse than 1984. So I decided to return to my diary, fire up YouTube, and thanks to the archive of YouTube, all of the sounds and clips that I wrote about from all of the movies, all of the music, all of the TV newscasts, all of the game shows. I mean, we're talking thousands of clips that I, I worked on archiving for actually about a year talk, and a half. Talk about the blessings of digital technology that retains everything. Nothing yeah. dies yeah, uh, it's all, on, on it, the web. But come back to this. Um, I love the Barbara Walters uh, line about the VCR, the, 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 the arrival of video home recording. Yeah. And some that, people actually used well, it for all sorts of things. Well, no, 1984 becomes the, the year, and this was, you know, cover stories of Newsweek that uh, August. There was uh, 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 specials on 2020 on the news. This was the year of the video revolution. This is the year that, as I say in my piece, that Americans started recording everything so Big Brother doesn't have to. And I feel like this is the beginning of something that we're still mm. playing out today where your last guest was talking about using some of these services. He's still with that, us. Ashkan Sultani, he'll be back. Ashkan was talking about about some of the service commercial services we use that track our movements like you know directions that's one way of looking at it but there's also things like foursquare where people are gleefully writing where they are who they're talking to how many people they're with as fast as they possibly can and documenting all of that and again so the government doesn't have to invest in uh, any money to to uh, acquire this data because we're the ones giving it themselves. And I feel this that... This is the beginning of techno-narcissism, let's call it. Well, yeah, but that was the year that we started, you know, so there's so much home video footage that I've discovered um, thanks to YouTube as well. So people are sort of digging back in their closets and putting the same stuff up now that they you see that people putting up, their children putting up today on Facebook or Instagram. And it's really eerie how you see some of these, you know, direct line and the way people would present themselves then and now. But but I really feel the video revolution was one of the main themes of 1984, the year that really like helps us. I feel understand the 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 where we're at today than say George Orwell. But you say we need a, 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 another frame, another metaphor for the problem. It's not it's not just Big Brother or the Orwell government thing. No, no, no. I I, I think what I really came to, especially coming back to this diary and 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 thinking about some of these characters again, is that. 
you know, 1984, the, the, the George Orwell one, just isn't really helpful for us today to understand where we're at when we talk about surveillance and we talk, yes, we do have, I mean, the stories that just came out about the Muslim Americans being spied on, terrifying. Right. But at the same time, I, I just don't think that Big Brother spying on Americans is a very good metaphor for us to understand what's going on today. And I feel that this comes back to the one of the main characters in my, so I mapped out, as I said, sort of Winston Smith was Michael Jackson for me. We had Ronald Reagan as Big Brother. But O'Brien, the character that mm. supposedly is the good guy that, that Winston falls in love with or hope at the beginning and then ends up torturing him, that to me is the Steve Jobs in my 1984. <laughs> because it, as you played in that clip, there was this belief in 1984 that computers were going to save us from George Orwell's dystopian vision. In fact, there's that line at the end of the book where O'Brien says, you want a vision of the future, imagine a boot stamping on a human face forever. Mm. Well, like in 1984, that little boot noise that popped on with the Macintosh with the happy face, I mean, like that is the one that I feel might be more in line with what Orwell's vision was. And that's Ben Walker with the A theory of everything. Uh, uh, Judith Donath, also in our studio, was director of the Sociable Media Group at the MIT Media Lab. She's now a fellow at the Berkman Center at Harvard. Your book, Judith, called The Social Machine, is all about the web as a new medium of a kind of eternal human sociability. How do you see it's working? And, well, and, and, and how, do, how do you, what do you mark as its main effects? Um, well, thank, first, thank you for having me here. Pleasure. It's, the issues I'm interested in is how are these technologies going to change human sociability? We are at heart social creatures, and how we interact with each other really defines what it means to be human. Um, to tie it in with what your previous guests have been talking about, I think one of the tremendous dangers we're getting with these um, revelations from the NSA is an increasing fear of being in public online. You know, if you look at hmm. what we think of as great civilizations or great cities, they're places where people like to be out in public, where they have a public persona, where they meet, they go out, they like to see and be seen. And there's a way in which the online world has the potential to be a truly exciting new version of that. There's the element that you can interact with people from all over the world. You can talk to people on all kinds of subjects. We can potentially make interfaces where you see people exactly as they are. You can mask identity. There's a tremendous potential there. And one issue now is that it's seen as a highly risky endeavor yep. to be out in public like that, that people are told, if you're sensible, you should withdraw, you should be private, right. you should keep everything about, you know, about yourself to yourself. Why put anything out there? And that kind of sense that there's a panoptic vision, mm -hmm. you know, that there's the Jeremy Bentham came up with the idea of the panopticon as this very highly efficient prison, where if you put all your prisoners in a circle, you can have around the central tower, you can have one guard in that tower who might or might not be looking at anyone at any time, but everyone would have to behave because they never knew when they were being looked at. Mm. And so you have that kind of chilling effect on behavior. And so for public life, that's what we're seeing here is this sort of sense of withdrawal. And what let, let me just it's sort of a chilling reflection on my, say, 10, 12, 15 years experience with the web. 
especially in the run-up to the war in Iraq, it seems to me the web was the place where any number of voices all around the world could connect and speak back to the, the, the mainstream media that were, you know, uh, all endorsing that war, that kind of idiotic rush. Mm-hmm. Um, from that as a place where every man a publisher, every man, a, every man woman, and child a, a, a radio station, right. that vision of the web's possibility, we're, we're worried now about the kind of conformer, you know, conformist, narrowing, inhibiting, Play it safe, you know. Stay in the in the middle, sort of. Right. How did this happen, Ben? What well, do you? I mean. Well, I think I think for one, we're seeing that in many many domains that it's easier to sell fear than it is to sell hope, as a sort of news as entertainment. I think that the one of the best ways to fight back against encroaching encroaching surveillance is not necessarily to turn inwards, but to say we need to be in public more. We need. To, people need to say things that aren't the most acceptable thing to be said so that more people are saying them. I think what you were saying about the Iraq war and the importance of having multiple voices, what, the last thing we need now is people to say, I have to conform, I have to be quiet, I can't say anything. Right. Instead of being that Emersonian device by which, you know, everybody can speak, you know, the, the vision in their own head. Ben, what's to say? We, well, it just to... seems that we have so many people going out. And I mean, when you look at the numbers of Facebook or Twitter, and they're growing still, it it, it seems that maybe, f- especially for many generations, especially younger generations, that there's not. I don't see the fear of sort of stepping back. I mean, all of the, the best people I know don't have a Facebook profile, but it seems that for most of the people that you know use the web for from everything from broadcasting their location to their networks to their uh, interests, that there's not a fear of being in public. Right. And I it's think- a very safe space, though. It's not a space of outspoken opinions or unconventional views that Judas is missing. There's Well, it's a mix. I think it works in two ways. You, you definitely have an ability to self-publish ideas that just didn't exist 20 years ago. On the other hand, in many ways, we also are developing a culture of um, of likes, of thinking, what should I say that will get the most likes? What's the most popular thing yep. I can come up with? So that you say the pieces that will be immediately accepted. This is, you know, this is a tendency that's not new in people. You know, conformity is part of what keeps our social life together. Um, but I think we need to have so, some balance. I think, in general, when I hear people talking in the media about saying, well, people are putting their location out online, it's always in the context, and what a foolish thing it is for them to do. But maybe the, the other side of looking at it is this is about the new public space and being mm. in public and not expressing that fair. Ashkan Sultani, I want, I, I want to hear your sort of quick inventory of social effects here. What does it do to us to be watched, to be in the panopticon? Absolutely. So I think it's a, this, this raises an interesting point, but I want to kind of highlight that it's not just the public posts that we're talking about. It's not just when I check in on Foursquare or post on Twitter uh, information about me. Um, I think what's happening quite a lot of what's happening and quite a lot of what we've written about is the collection of what would previously be private communications, right? This is when I 
email you or send a private message to you or make a phone call to you. Um, and it's that information that is being recorded and collected at such a large scale, right? Previously, if, you know, you and I had some ideas that were potentially counter to the status quo, we could maybe, uh, you know, meet and talk in a, in a private space or some sort of location where no one else could monitor. But more and more we're seeing those types of communications move to services like email and phone and other platforms that you and I don't control or, or have um, kind of uh, privacy on and the government and companies can can extract data from. So it's not just the information that I willingly share uh, that is being used uh, to kind of control or influence. I think it's also that information that I would previously expect to be private, right? Phone calls, uh, emails, uh, private messages that are increasingly public on account of uh, these, these platforms accessing that data. And I think that's an important point. Speak, speak to the corporate and the, and the marketing manipulations here. It seems to me they're even more fascinating than the, the, the political well, side. Right. I mean, so, so one of the reasons I think we're finding that, you know, when I message you on, uh, say, a social network like Facebook or when I send you an email on Gmail, that that information isn't private is because the companies that build and provide those platforms for us are doing it uh, not for free, but for the cost of being able to monitor that communication in order to advertise to us, right? So when I send you an email on Gmail, uh, Gmail requires that, that that communication be visible to Gmail, right? So that they can monitor that communication so that if I mention, say, an automobile, they can show me advertising for that automobile based on our communication. And as a result of that business model, it, you know, forcing that communication to be, or defaulting that communication to be available to the service provider like Gmail, the government can then step in and access that information. And it's those business models that I think are driving some of this breakdown in this private uh, public-private uh, space that we're previously accustomed. Judith. Yes, I, I think it's important to distinguish between a bunch of different kinds of watchers that we need to be aware of because there's the government that's watching us, which ostensibly is about our own security, and there our concerns are what happens if the government turns. Right now we have a reasonably benign government. The fear is what happens if we have a government that moves more towards you know, at worst, something like East Germany. The advertisers are a different one because there it's about people watching us, again, supposedly for our own good, to give us things we want. But it's really about having this amazing ability to twist and turn what we desire and particularly to force us to have an endless appetite to buy more. And then there's the third area, which is the social surveillance and our conformity to others. Well, exactly. Ben, I want your take, conspiratorially as you like, on this merger of the marketing interest and the police work. It well, means, among other things, that neither the political side of our lives or, nor the corporate are going to fight this whole trend toward absolute see-through everything. I think that the, the distinction that Ashkan wanted to make between you know our private communications and things that we're willingly uh, rushing to share is very important. But I think that they, the concerns kind of 
that they become the same thing in that it's the metadata and the sort of the other uses. So I might be willing to share certain things with my friends on Facebook, but when those things are collected and aggregated and put maybe with health history or other issues, yeah. that that's not what I wanted that information to be used for in any way. So I feel that that again that even in the things we're willingly ready to share, those are being used in the way that the same way that maybe we wouldn't want our private conversations to be. We're talking about the surveillance state. Earlier this week, we spoke with the artist and writer Trevor Paglin, who is making a reputation for his images of the invisible, finding ways to see the secrets that could explain the way this world works. One of the things that I spent a lot of time working on is trying to uh, look at secrecy, looking at what are all of the things that are around us all of the time that strongly influence the way that the world works, but which we are often not only unaware of, but which are often quite literally invisible to us. And they can be invisible to us because they're very far away. More often they're invisible to us because they're a little bit abstract and we don't know how to look for them or how to see them. As I have a project going out to the desert and kind of remote places where many kinds of secret military bases and this kind of thing uh, you know, are, you know, whether that's in Nevada or whether that's in Afghanistan. And many times uh, you can't really go anywhere near these uh, facilities. And so what I do is use very, very high-powered lenses designed for astronomy um, to try to take pictures of places on the ground that might be 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, or even 60 miles away. When you're looking at those kind of extreme distances, you end up looking for so much heat and so much haze that the images actually become very, very blurry. They start to fall apart. And for me, that blurriness and the, the image that is holding together but not quite is, is also allegorical in a way because the images become an image of something that you're seeing that's very far away. But it also becomes an image of what it looks like when, you're, uh, when the physical properties of vision uh, itself begin to collapse. Some of those images look like sort of hovering clouds of cover. Some of them resemble those huge blots of Mark Rothko's paintings. I mean, take the statement apart in a way. When you look at things at these great distances, uh, there is a tendency for the images to collapse into a kind of abstraction. You can't see clearly. Things become blurry. So I'm interested in images that don't speak themselves, that don't tell you what they are. And to me, that can be very, very productive because when we look at an image and we don't recognize it, it gives us the opportunity to ask questions about it in a way that we might not ask questions about an image that is instantly intelligible to us. Trevor Peckman, what is it about secrecy itself that provokes you? What I like is art that helps us understand the historical moment that we're living in, art that helps us learn how to see uh, the environment around us all of the time. And I think that, uh, you know, for the last uh, 15 years or so, the more secretive parts of the state, whether that is agencies like the NSA or the CIA or agencies like the National Reconnaissance Office, in the U.S. especially, but also around the world in general, have played a huge role in structuring the way that societies are working, the way that politics are working, the way that even economies are working, certainly the way that culture is working. And I want to try to see the footprint that this, what, what we might call secret state, has on the world around us. Have you figured it out yet? 
<laughs> well, it's always changing. So, you know, about a decade ago, I was spending a lot of time looking at uh, the CIA's secret prisons and the rendition programs. I've spent a lot of time looking at drones. I've spent a lot of time looking at spy satellites. More recently, I've spent a lot of time looking at the NSA and looking at what does the infrastructure of a surveillance state look like? Where are the places where surveillance happens? What, the, what, does, uh, what does it look like? We actually don't have very good metaphors to understand it. We use metaphors like, oh, the information superhighway or the cloud. These are very, very abstract um, concepts. But when you start to actually look at how surveillance works and how the Internet works, you find, oh, no, there's cables, there's buildings, there's places where people do things, there's bases you know, all over the world that have antennas, and, and they look like things. And that's, uh, to some extent, what, um, what the infrastructure of, of a surveillance state looks like. And so I've been spending a lot of time trying to understand that and make images uh, accordingly. The New Yorker profile of you said that your mission is not to expose and edify so much as to confound and unsettle. I see a kind of bemused smile on your face as you work. There is an aspect of humor sometimes in the work, and I think that that, for me, is, can be a kind of powerful response. Oftentimes I'm looking at things that are utterly horrifying and very overwhelming and, and quite frightening in many cases, and I think that um, to smile in the face of that is a way to, for me to try to not be consumed by the fear that, that, that some of these institutions elicit in a lot of people. And I think for me there's a bigger point underlying that, which is that a lot of the national security state and the secrecy state relies on an atmosphere of fear in order to accrue power unto itself. In other, in other words, the more afraid that a population is, the more willing a population is to cede extraordinary powers to some of the most uh, coercive parts of the state. And I think for me to try to look at some of this material and not be afraid in the face of it is not only something that helps keep me sane and keeps me help working, but is also a little bit of a political position. Trevor, what about the, shall we say, emotional effects? I mean, effects on our individuality, our courage, our social attachments, our social responsibility. Yeah, well, this, uh, and this is something where the surveillance state is, is very, very pernicious. Um, when you live in a surveillance society, people act differently. Um, when you know that you're being surveilled, you uh, are much more likely to conform to what you perceive as social norms. You tend to act far more conservatively than you might otherwise act. And I think cumulatively what this adds up to is a uh, society where that is actually quite a bit less free. I mean, freedom is part of it, uh, your ability to explore yourself, to explore things that, um, to, to get to know about yourself, to explore um, ideas that are not necessarily like widely condoned. That was the artist and photographer Trevor Paglin. There are all sorts of good links to Trevor Paglin on the web. Check them out. With us live are Judith Donath, social theorist of the Internet from Harvard, Ben Walker, radio man, and Ashkan Sultani, investigative reporter. Uh, who could have imagined this nightmare, say, 30 years ago, and how do we get out of it uh, over the next 30? I'm just struck that 
it's a matter of months ago, we, we did a program on, you know, would we ever get over 9-11? And we completely short-shrifted these huge growth industries, all of them built or justified by a kind of residual fear after 9-11, plus commerce too. Uh, what's the way out, Ashkan? I mean, I, th- I think you hit the nail on the head when you described the kind of the motivation here. And I think the the general feeling uh, or general kind of ethos of fear that we have um, is, you know, one of the reasons why we were, I think the government um, is essentially doing its job, right? We've, we've, you know, as a society, or at least as a nation said, that we will not tolerate another 9-11 at any cost, right? And the implications of that are essentially that we must have near perfect enforcement and surveillance to ensure that no attacks on U.S. soil happen ever again. And I think that mandate that's been given, the at-all-cost, has kind of put us in this predicament, right? Mm-hmm. The government, the NSA, is doing what is within their capability, both technically and legally, to some degree, uh, to kind of fulfill that mission. And I think it's that that mission that we might want to consider and say, well, you know, uh, the, this this fear of, of attack on U.S. soil is justified, but perhaps not so justified that we'll sacrifice any civil liberties or any ability to, uh, to you know, act privately uh, uh, as a result. That gets at least at half of the question of what it is we like about being watched, about being surveilled, this, this security thing. There's also the commercial side that we love the conformity. Uh, yeah, of the I'm, tech- I'm much more frightened of the companies like Facebook and Google than I am of, of the government at the end of the day. It just seems that you know this is the business model of the future. I mean, all of the, the business models for these companies depends on making sure that, that they get to collect all of this data and rework it and use it to tell stories and sell, sell things to us. And I find that much more frightening than, say, what the NSA is doing. Judith. Well, and we also need to fight to have a society in which nonconformity is okay. Yeah, that's one of the the biggest pieces is that if you have a, for instance, it's not just the government, but for instance, it's health insurance, it's employers. There's a lot of people who, at this point, people are afraid if they have information about them that puts them in a category of unacceptable other, they're going to be really in a bad situation. And so what we also need to fight for is not just that people aren't recording that information, but how is it used and how and that you want to live in a society where difference is accepted because the more differences we accept, the more it's safe to be in public and to be yourself in public. This is the eternal question. It's, the, it's Dostoevsky's question in The Grand Inquisitor. What degree of our freedom are we willing to sacrifice for our security, for bread or, or for safety? Uh, and it's, a, it's, it's getting to look like a rather desperate choice in which, in which traditional American nonconformity of the Emersonian variety is, is, is being sacrificed. I mean, that would be my short take. Emerson, Emerson's whole notion was that uh, whoso would be a man must be a nonconformist, must be outspoken, must live by your own inner light. Um, yeah, in in George Orwell's 1984, uh, the whole that was a man of the past that the party believed, and they had stomped him out, and that man no longer existed. And I I kind of wonder if we're heading maybe towards the same place. Uh, there's several other points here. Jaron Lanier has raised a question for years now. 
uh, about paying companies paying for our information. We're giving it away, and they're getting rich on it. What's the what's the justice here? Um, I think it's a nice idea. I think it's I don't see the path to getting that to happen. But I think on the other side, we need to be more aware of what we're not paying for. And that when we expect everything to be free, but we discount that we're being advertised to, um, that we're not paying for things that way, I think we have to have a much better understanding of how expensive it is, not only in terms of our liberty, but also in terms of the type of society that a population of advertising-driven people will create, because it's a deeply consumerist society that's not only a danger to us because of our personal liberties, but even just from an environmental standpoint, that we can't continue to consume without stopping um, indefinitely. Ashkan Sultani, I wonder what, what's the hope of a digital bill of rights? So I, I think we've seen um, both in terms of, of, of policy as well as norms start to emerge with regards to things like um, kind of rights online. And one of the, one of the issues is that this is such a rapidly growing and, uh, field you know, we, 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 were, we were hardly having debates of this scale 20 years ago, right? And so not it's, not, it's not surprising that, it's, that the law hasn't kept up and provided, say, a Bill of Rights. I think it's actually good. We want the legal system to, to move slowly and thoughtfully. But um, I think at some point, in the same way that we came up with laws for regards to other types of intellectual property, IP-type laws, and other types of protections for intangible assets, I think we're going to slow, slowly see that our information rights and our kind of privacy rights will will emerge as a as a you know as a value in, in society. And we have seen, in fact, um, Brazil has recently come out with a essentially a digital bill of rights um, uh, for their kind of for Brazilians as well. I, I, what privacy right is is my question. One of the few big legal cases on on this in this area, the Jones case, seems to establish that what twenty eight days of complete surveillance is an invasion of uh, 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 some right to privacy. It doesn't say what fourteen days or three you know three days would be a violation or, or it doesn't fill in a lot of the gaps here. But what is left of a constitutional claim to privacy? I think it comes down to, again, uh, kind of the essentially information asymmetries, right? So we, we talked earlier about all these cases where, uh, you know, infor- where we're publishing information and then it's being used in contexts we don't approve of. Um, you know, if, if we just take the word privacy out and we just talk about control in the same way that we talk about control over our bodies or control over our property, um, we might start to see this in a different way, which is that, um, you know, the right to control information that I provide or that I generate, that I, you know, my, things that I say in contexts that I agree with. And, and we have to figure out, you know, it's a hard thing to do, but we have to figure out what those norms are, right? We, you know, we have some laws where if I tell my lawyer or my doctor certain things, they're restricted from using that in contexts that I don't approve. And we might want to think if, if that can be expanded to type other types of information that I disclose that I don't want to be used in certain contexts. Ben Walker, you, you've said we need a new metaphor to describe the issue and maybe a way out. 
Well, I Make just want to come back to, to what, what Ashkan just said there, though. It seems that, that we have so many of these big companies also fighting to make sure that doesn't happen. I mean, again, it seems like so many of the business models are about being able to collect as much data and do whatever they want with it. So I agree. It would be great to see some of these things happen, but it seems like the path is really going to be difficult. So the, and, new, the, new, the new frame, the new Walker metaphor is... I still don't, I still don't have one. I'm still obsessed with the the knowing for sure that it's not George Orwell. I do think that the 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 Big Brother 1984 is not the metaphor we it's need. It's closer to the consumerism that, that but, troubles Judith. Judith, right. but also I I don't see that we're going to be able to control this flow of information. Information moves very easily. Once something's out, it is out permanently. I think we are entering into a very new era where there's enormous amounts of information about people that other people have, governments have, employers have. It's out there, and that's the future we're moving into. But we can control how it's being used and how much it's how it's being used to control people, less over how much we can control it. So, for instance, mm -hmm. instead of saying you can't have this information, you can say you may not use it. You can say employers who've already been told things like you might see someone's race, but you cannot use that in your hiring decision, will have to be told that, you know, maybe here's a set of things you can use, the other information is out. But I think we have to get used to living in a radically different world than the one we're in now. Thank you. Judith Donath. Thank you, Ashkan Sultani. Thank you, Ben Walker. And Trevor Paglin. There's a lot more on our website, radioopensource.org, including five surveillance artists to watch. There's a conversation with a fascinating German journalist, Fritz Pleitgen. He's very cautionary, a veteran of the Stasi Wars in East Germany. He thinks we're not taking it seriously enough. And it's not just bugging Angela Merkel either. It's being vigilant about our expressive individuality. Also, we've got the 10 greatest hits from the Snowden Files, too. We had help this week from Amar Ashar, Ethan Chill, Siri Nairop. Our show was produced under the watchful eyes of Max Larkin, Kunal Jasti, and the engineer George, Ricks, George Hicks. Mary McGrath is our chief of security. I'm Christopher Leiden. Join us next time on Open Source. you uh, enjoyed that as much as you could en enjoy something uh, about our current dystopia that we're listening in listening in living in we, yes the current listening and watching and viewing dystopia the current voyeurism dystopia that we have made for ourselves uh, I can go on and on about um, the word dystopia <laughs> and what it means to me, but I won't. I won't do that in this episode, at least. And this this sign off. I just want to say, you know, thank you, thank you for staying with this. If you enjoyed um, this, the episode of the podcast that I presented, uh, that well, <laughs> that I handpicked for you to listen to listener 
um go go check out this podcast radio show more open source um the website everything will be in the show notes but it's uh open uh radioopensource.org uh, actually you know they actually well actually uh they just did a recent episode about um capitalism in the digital age uh, about um Shoshana Zuboff's new book The Age of Surveillance Capitalism um yeah uh you know this is a comedy podcast don't forget <laughs> It's just important sometimes that you know where the comedy comes from. So I I figured it was appropriate to share Um, something that I think encapsulates my thinking uh, or at least where my brain, where my brain operates in this space of, um, yeah, of where and where you can expect the show to continue to go. Um, all my jokes will, will purely be based on surveillance and the internet and the cameras and microphones because that's funny to me. Okay. Well, this has been station management, Tim Notary, uh, coming at you. Sorry. This has been station management. Is this station management's voice? No, this is Tim Notary. The host of the show, not not Tim Natari, station station management. We all have very different names and voices. Well, that's it for this episode. Uh, there there should be another episode dropping sometime uh, later today, California on the coast time, the West Coast time. Don't know when, uh, but uh, you know an episode that's just not uh, another podcast that I've snuck into the middle of my podcast well thank you for (laughs) all of this again I don't know how many times I've said thank you for listening but thank you for listening thank you for listening thank you for listening thank you for checking out our website at acrashpod.com thank you for sending us all those tweets to add a crash pod on Twitter. Thank you for sending me all the emails to info at and Tim at a crash Thank you for all those things. And uh, hopefully we're fading out right now. And just, you know, the theme song is playing and the show is over now.